Thank you for listening to the Alliance Church Podcast. We desire to connect you with God and one another, whether here in Wisconsin or around the world. Let's listen into this week's message. Well, I want to welcome all of you to the winter edition of Easter at Alliance. Uh, my name is Brian. I am one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, for those of you who know, I'm married, my wife Hannah. Uh, and then we have two kids, uh, Addie and Elias. Addie's four, Elias is two. I think I have a picture up there just so you can, I can prove it. I just Googled really cute children and this was what came up and I stole it. So, no, I'm kidding. Do not be deceived by this picture. They are sinners. Okay. We pray for them, but they're great. We love them. And uh, as, you, as kids, even as Addie, she's four, as they get older, it's just so funny to watch little children sponge up things we do, uh, like even phrases, cliches that we say. Uh, just this week, Addie uh, put her hand on my shoulder and she says, Dada, I have good news and bad news. <laughs> and I'm like, I'll be the judge of which one is good or bad because you're not old enough. But go ahead, what do, you, what do you think? And she said, well, the, the good news is it's been a good year. <laughs> the, the bad news is I slammed my finger in the car door today. And I was like, well, at least it didn't ruin your year. So, but you know, she just has those where she'll say stuff. She used the word inconvenient the other day. And I'm like, it is, did I, when did I give you permission to get so old? Um, but, uh, and even Elias, and one of the things that they do is every day at our house is an Easter egg hunt. Every day, every single day. It's just not eggs. It's my keys. It's, uh, it's my wallet, uh, the remote. Still can't find that. And they get better with every year. They get better at hiding stuff, even to the point where they don't even know where it is. They don't have a clue. And I don't know if that's exactly where the Easter egg tradition came from, but I'll say everybody on Easter Sunday, 2,000 years ago. They were all looking. The people that knew Jesus, that followed Jesus, they were looking for the body because the tomb was empty. The body wasn't there. And as they were looking, uh, it wasn't necessarily that they found Jesus, but more that Jesus found them. He appeared to hundreds of his followers uh, in the days, the weeks to come, except for one of his inner circle. And his name is Thomas. And that's the story we're going to unpack today. This is Thomas's story. It's captured in one of another follower of Jesus, John. It's captured in his eyewitness account in the New Testament. We'll be in John chapter 20. This is Thomas's story, verse 24 in chapter 20. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now, one of the 12, that means he's one of the inner circle. This is the inner circle of Jesus, the 12 disciples. He just happened to, he was out when Jesus came, uh, re returned to meet his disciples in person. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, uh, you don't get it in the English here, but in the Greek, which is the original language that this was written in, that word put is, is kind of a rarely used word. It's, it's not necessarily punch, but it's, it's just south of that. It's, there's a, 
mild violence to it, shove, or unless I shove my finger in there or shove my hand or fist in his, in his wounds, then, then I won't believe. It is, it is not a reach uh, to say that Thomas, there's some emotion there. Every ancient reader would have got that. Every ancient listener would have heard that, that he's you know, angry, uh, discouraged, frustrated, and he has a lot to be frustrated about. Thomas has a long story with Jesus. But I think this is the soil that doubt can grow in. You know, I think usually doubt can have a starting point in some kind of wound, some kind of pain, something that was frustrating or difficult or hard. Doubt can come from discouragement. Thomas has reason. I mean, he gave up like maybe the, the prime of his young adult life to follow Jesus. Jesus was not the most popular character everywhere, leader everywhere. He, there were places where uh, people did not like Jesus. It's possible Thomas's family wasn't on board with this. He left his job, his career, to do nothing but follow this leader around. And Thomas was dedicated. In fact, in John 11, a few chapters earlier, Thomas is the one who tells all the other disciples, he says, hey, listen, you know, we're going to go to a place where Jesus' life is in danger. Thomas is the one who says, hey, let's go die with Jesus. We're, 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 we're that all in. We're going to go and die with him. That's how committed he is. And he'd follow Jesus around. And as the movement grew, he put his faith and trust in Jesus as Jesus told him to. Jesus billed himself as this Messiah. And they interpreted that to mean the long prophesied Messiah, the Savior, who is going to liberate God's people. And, and not as we know today, liberating God's people, all of us, from sin and death uh, if we put our faith in Jesus, it's not that kind of liberation. They thought he was going to be the one to liberate God's people, just the Jews, from Roman oppression. You know, give back Israel its sovereignty over its own nation state. And so he's following Jesus, believing this is true, convinced Jesus is invincible. And it's possible that one of the last things he heard this leader say, one of his last memories of Jesus is recorded in Matthew 27 where Jesus is on this cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about that for a second. I mean, Thomas was following this guy. He was being told that he was God's man and then it's like he's admitting that he's not. On the cross, like he's, he's yelling out, why have you forsaken me? I mean, imagine how forsaken Thomas feels from God. That was his leader. And if, if, if God's forsaking his leader, he must be at minimum forsaking me. He must even hate me. And Thomas isn't even, he's not even through the grief cycle of shock and, and then denial and, and anger with all of that before all of a sudden the disciples are coming up to him and saying, hey, he's rose from the dead. I mean, and, and you, you gave up your life, and all of a sudden he's, not appear, he's appearing to everyone else but you? No, you're, you're discouraged. But there's something else, I think, in the soil of doubt or discouragement that grows doubt, uh, maybe even at the root of doubt. Doubt isn't the, it's not the absence of belief. It's actually uh, belief in something else. That's that's what doubt is. Doubt isn't that you have no beliefs or no faith. It's just that it's maybe misplaced or in the wrong spot. 
Uh, one way to explain this, this is maybe one way to, to do it, is uh, I used to think that of all the times that God could choose to come back to earth and live among us and, and, and walk among us, why did he choose the time that he did? I mean, we know from the Bible, Scripture's clear that God does not have a beginning or an end. He's not, he didn't start. So if you can for a second just try to cram into your, into your brain the amount of millennium, as many as you can think of, trillions, billions of millennium before Jesus' arrival on earth, what's another 2,000 years, right? Like what's another, why wouldn't he just wait till Instagram, you know? Like we would get it all on film. Like we could record it on these iPhones and we can then share it around the world. I used to think, why wouldn't he just wait till then? He could have picked any time. And then 2020 happened. And then <laughs> I realized it doesn't matter what, I mean, we could have all the technology and you st we still don't know what's real or true or fake news. It was so hard. I mean, I mean, in the March of 2020, it was like, I don't know what is, what way is up or down? I mean, you can, here's, here's what it is. Here's the truth. You can find evidence on the Google machine for whatever verdict you believe. You can find, if you want to believe the world's flat, you can find evidence, proof out there. If you want to believe the Chicago Bears are a Super Bowl competitive team, <laughs> you can find evidence. I knew, yep, yep, go for it. I need it. This sermon was, was warming up. It needed something. That was cheap, but I'll take it. Because, desperate. I made some friends, too, and some enemies, just there. But, you know, you can find evidence for whatever you want to believe. So the question is, what do you seek? What do you believe? You know, this is where it shows up in the text. This is where it shows up in the Bible. In that passage we just read, you see... You see Thomas say his, what he believes, right? The disciples, in verse 25, the disciples tell him, we've seen the Lord. We're telling you the truth. We're sharing the viral social media posts. We're telling you this is not fake news. Jesus is alive. It's true. But Thomas says to them, these two key words here, unless I. For Thomas, it was, unless I can put my hands or my finger in the wounds, then, I, then I'm not going to believe. The real Jesus would come to me. The one I know, the one I believe in, the one I trust. That's Thomas's version. That's his verdict. And he didn't see any evidence for it. That's where his doubt comes from. You might have other versions of this. You know, for some of us, I just listed out a few of them here. I've heard as a pastor, I've heard people say, you know, unless, unless God brings me a spouse, unless I can get married... Unless, unless I can get that job, unless I can get into that school or have that kind of family or feel close to God, unless I can live how I want, unless I can believe the way I want to or the way culture and society say is okay, unless I think God would say or do that, then I don't believe in this God, the God of the Bible. He's not real to me. This Jesus, not unless he makes sense to me or I feel like it's right, if you don't let this Jesus tell you you're wrong, if you don't let God tell you you're wrong or tell you your feelings are wrong or, or, or what feels right to you is wrong or what you think logically is, is, is wrong, if you don't let this book offend what you think, then, then let's be honest, whatever you 
put after thee unless I, whatever comes after that, that's your God. That's your, that's your version of God that you're looking for and you won't find it in here because it's just yours. And, and maybe even your God. You know, you get to decide. God's not God. If God can't tell you're wrong, then you're God. This is where Thomas is at. And then Thomas has what you and I might call a come to Jesus moment. But really, it's a Jesus come to Thomas moment. So let's check it out. Here it is. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas says what scholars and theologians who study the Bible will tell you is perhaps the most clear the most simple and the most true statement of who Jesus Christ is in the entire New Testament. My Lord and my God. <laughs> Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Do you, can you imagine what Thomas is feeling right there? Can you imagine one of the, maybe one of the first things he realizes about God is how patient, how merciful. I mean, he comes bringing peace. What, what Thomas is realizing is God was there. He heard my doubts. He knew my heart's resentment and bitterness and anger. And he comes to me in peace, bringing peace. He could have wiped me. This is God I'm looking at. He could wipe me off the planet with a word, and he brings me peace. But, but you know what Jesus goes to to win Thomas over? You know what he goes right to? What did he go to? His wounds. Jesus' wounds. It's the wounds of God that win Thomas. You know, the Bible is clear about this, that we're gonna get, um, when we get to heaven, we're gonna get a new body. We're gonna get a new uh, lease, a new body. And I don't know if we'll have a say in it, but I want hair. That's, <laughs> you didn't have to laugh that hard, but that's <laughs> what I would ask for. You know, if you're gonna ask me, just a flowing in the wind Fabio <laughs> amount of hair. Some people have sent me some memes in the last 24 hours of what they think I'll look like in heaven. <laughs> and if you don't know who Fabio is, just ask somebody who looks old and <laughs> all of my friends are now don't like me anymore I just anyway no I, I I don't know if we get to pick but you know uh, God does God got to pick Jesus 
He could choose what he leaves behind in the old body, what he brings with him in the new body. And of all the things that God chooses to bring with him in the new body, scars. Scars. This would be the first things in our list we might leave behind. When we see them, we don't want to be reminded. No, we would leave them behind, but God, he brings them. Why? Here's what I think. I think that God knows most people, I think this is true. This is, I think most people believe that there's a higher being out there. There's something. And I think God knows that the mountains, the fury of the sea, the majesty of the stars and the galaxies, the incredible mystery and intricacies of physics and biology, all of those things scream out, there's a God. We see the power. We see it and we go, there's got to be something else out there. I think most people see the power of God in nature and in the world. They believe there's a God. They just don't trust him. There's a difference. And for God, it's not good enough to be known, to be seen as powerful and capable and to be, to be known by people. He wants to be trusted. He wants to be loved. And he knows. But to get that is the wounds. It's the weakness, it's the vulnerability of a, of a God who's willing to be wounded. I think a lot of people, maybe some people in this room, you've never, you, you've never met a wounded, scarred God. You're not, you're not looking for that. Your definition of godness and godlike is maybe all the power, all that, but God's been coming to you, and he's coming to you on Easter today with wounds. Because while the mountains and the stars and the oceans might reveal God's power, it's the wounds that show you his love. And that is the only power that can change a human heart and bring you to trust him, bring you to love him. You see, this is the problem, is our definitions, the God we're seeking is nothing like the God of the book. And there's a crowd full of them on the day that Jesus dies, the day he goes to the cross, there's a crowd full of Thomases and doubters. And this is their story. This is where we see their definition of godness right here in Matthew chapter 27. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, the ones who knew the Bible the best, Mocking him. They missed it. Why? Because he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Their definition of God is a God who saves himself, who has the power to stop the bleeding, stop the suffering, climb down off the cross. That's their definition of God. And they don't see it in the real God whose definition of power is letting the cross win so that you and I might win. They completely miss it. But they go on, they go on, they say, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe. There it is, there's their unless I, 
If he comes down off the cross, we'll believe him. That's their definition of power. A God who can climb down, stop the suffering. He trusts in God, let him rescue himself now. Let him rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. You know, this, this is your theology. This is, this is many of our theology of God. This is theirs. And I'm here to tell you today, Easter's here to tell you today. You don't want that version of God. You don't, you don't want your def, you don't want to define God. You want God to offend you and tell you your truth is a lie. Anybody that gets up in front of you and tries to sell you Christianity without tears and suffering, maybe you've had it. Maybe you've taken that theology that, hey, come to Come to church and, and give your life to Jesus, and your life's going to be fine. There's, everything's going to be okay now. Once you give your life to the Lord, all the scars go away. You don't even see them anymore. And there's no pain anymore. And maybe you said yes to it. You bought in on that. But then life, life scars. Things have pain, suffering happens. And the problem with your theology is if you only know a God that loves you by taking suffering away from you, then the moment he allows it, he hates you. And it's no wonder why you hate him back. I mean, it's, them theologians put it like this, you either will crown Jesus or you'll crucify him. There's no middle ground with him. And it makes perfect sense. Why, if you believe God's supposed to take away all your pain, all your suffering, you know, none of that's ever gonna come your way, and then all of a sudden he lets it in, well, then you think he must hate me. And it's no wonder why. You want to crucify that version. You don't see that version. But there's a second problem with this view, too. Is if, is if, God, is if God isn't somehow sovereign over and, and Lord of and has a say in all things, including suffering. And I know this is hard to hear because in a room this size, it's just real pain. And it's real pain regardless. I'm not pretending it's not pain. But if your definition of God is a God that's not sovereign over all your life, then your definition of God is someone who's either playing tennis with evil and just reacting, which is a terrifying thought. Like he has no say, and he's just reacting to whatever happens. That's a terrifying thought. Or even worse, your theology of God is that maybe he created the world. He made it. Maybe it was good. In the beginning, God made the world. It was good. It was, it was great. And then evil. And then suffering. And then pain ruined it all. And now everything, everything is just second best. The cross is just, it's just a salvage operation. It's just trying to gather up what's left over. I mean, everything is second best. And listen to me, if you believe that theologically about that God, it's no wonder you believe that about your life. You know? That maybe, maybe your life, it's like everything was good and then the marriage ended. Now everything in my life is gonna be second best. Everything was going good and then the business failed and now everything in my life is just gonna be second best. I'm gonna have to settle for a second. And the rest of your life is a salvage operation. And I'm here to tell you today that the Easter story is telling us that that cross is not second best. That's not, we're not better off without the cross. There is a love 
There is a forgiveness. There is a power that we would never know otherwise without the scars to tell us, without the cross. We're not better off without it. And listen, about your life, you're not better off without Jesus taking whatever is in your life and using it. I know people, you're gonna hear stories in a little bit, testimonies in the, in the video, people getting baptized today that are here right now. They're gonna tell you about scars. They're gonna tell you about pain. They're gonna tell you about wounds and suffering. And it's suffering objectively so. It's not anything less than pain and suffering. It's tragic, it's hard. And they will tell you that they don't wish it on their worst enemy. They wouldn't wish it on anybody. And, and, and maybe they're even actively trying to prevent these things from happening to other people. They're going out of their way to keep these things from happening to other people. But they will also tell you that every time they see the wound now, every time they see the scar now, they see a love, they see a power, they see a forgiveness, they see a hope, they see what God's capable of in a way they never would have known otherwise. They wouldn't trade it, they wouldn't wish it on anybody. It's a, it's a wound, it's a scar, but they see God in it because they let him have it. He can use it. Listen to me. Listen, listen. God's big enough to end the suffering. He's capable of climbing down off that cross. He's capable of ending the suffering. But would you leave room for the God of the Bible who's big enough to use it for purpose, to point people to him, just like these people. They're going to show you some scars, and you're going to see them, and they're going to show you these are proof God is bigger, just like Jesus. You know, Thomas, we, Pastor Brandon and I, uh, who's over at Hortonville today, uh, we were talking about this passage, and Pastor Brandon said this. He said, you know, Thomas went into, into this, he went down this road of wanting to put his hands in Jesus' wounds, but really, it was Jesus that put his hand in Thomas's wounds. You know, Thomas, he didn't change. He, there's no verse between verse 25 and 26. He didn't change until after, until after Jesus broke in. Jesus broke through. Listen, if any pastor, anybody gets up and tries to tell you that if you want to meet God, you got to change your attitude. You got to change, you got to start obeying these rules, start fixing yourself, and then Jesus will show up, and then God will show up. That's not in the book. That's not in the book. That's not what God does. God is the only one that can change you. You just show up, and God will change you. Thomas didn't do it. But there is one thing Thomas did do. He showed up. I mean, Thomas didn't believe in Jesus. But did you catch it? He was in a room of people who did. He's in a room of people who did. He may have doubted Jesus was real, but he did not 
doubt that he belonged with those people, that he belonged there, that there was space for him to be his doughty, resentful self. And I'm telling you, as long as I'm pastor of this church, as long as we're here, we will have room in these chairs for Thomas every week. You just come. Bring your doubts. Bring your anger, your frustration. Bring it here. We can't change you. I can't change you. Jesus will show up. And Jesus will speak to you in a personal way. And you know what? It may not be today. Just like for Thomas. It was not Easter Sunday for Thomas. You might be sitting here like, look, this pastor's a little squirrely. Okay? It's kind of scrawny and animated. This is not my day. But you show up like Thomas. Maybe one week, just like Thomas, one week later, that'll be your day. Maybe that'll be the day. And listen, you don't take my word for it. You don't have to take my testimony. You don't take these people's testimony. You're going to see their story. You don't take their story for it. You don't have to take Thomas's. He didn't take any of the other disciples' testimony either. You're in good company with him. But here's what I want you to know. Even if you're not seeking the real God, he's seeking you. He's seeking you. Let's pray. Jesus, we have wounds. We have scars. They hurt, and they're real. But Lord, the cross tells us that you can take a sign or a symbol that for, for centuries was a symbol of death, and you can make it something that we mount on our churches, we mount on our walls as a symbol of hope and power and love. Would you do the great reversal right now, even as I speak? Take the wounds, take the scars, we give them to you, and would it be that every time we see them, every time we look at them, we worship you, we see you and your power and your love in a way that we would never have known otherwise. Thank you that our best days are always in front of us because you take it all and you use it. And you always do best. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.